Welcome to the Athens First United Methodist Church Sermons Podcast. I'm Kayla Thomason, a member of the communications team. We hope you enjoy this weekly resource. Please be seated. This morning we give consideration to Luke's uh, translation of the Palm Sunday Parade, beginning in verse 19, verse chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road, and as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would shout out. Let us pray. We join the chorus of others this day, O God. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear our voices of praise and thanksgiving, we ask. And may they resound all the days of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When the children came in this morning, it made me mindful of the time when I was a child in the First United Methodist Church of Warrington, and we would do the same thing on Palm Sunday. It's a tradition in the church, most United Methodist churches at least, that the children come down the aisle waving a palm on Palm Sunday, and we sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We all know it's Palm Sunday. You can't miss it when you come to church on this particular Day And I recall that parade. Parades are great, aren't they? Especially when they celebrate something wonderful, which they always do. There's nothing quite like a champion's parade, is there? I mean, when the parade came down Lumpkin this year in January, if you were there lining the street shouting, Go dogs!" or whatever it was you were shouting, that I hope was not profane. I hope you were shouting something encouraging and supportive. It was a great day, and even if you were home watching it on television and you weren't even present, you could enter into it and rejoice and be glad because the Bulldogs had vanquished the evil empire that we know as Alabama. (laughs) We all know that's not true. I'm just trying to be funny. But it was a great day, was it not? Because a parade of champions is a wonderful thing. And when the Braves celebrated their championship, we reveled in that as well. It was a day to rejoice 
and be glad. There's nothing like a champion's parade. And that was the case on this first Palm Sunday. Here rides in the one we have awaited for so many years. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we know that Holy Week is not only a story about Palm Sunday, it is also a story about the Last Supper, and it is a story about the crucifixion and then the resurrection to follow. We know that as this week unfolds, as one preacher said, the sugar comes off the pill, and it does. Day by day by day, as we celebrate this day but move into the week, the sugar slowly but surely comes off the pill. And it's because Jesus is attempting to address the impossible and the inevitable. The impossible being sin and the inevitable being death. Sin is something that characterizes every life, every person who has ever lived and whoever will live aside from Christ is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're told that from the Scriptures, and Jesus was coming to do something about that. If I ask you this morning to give me an answer, your answer would all be the same to the question, have you ever done anything in your life that was wrong? You would have to answer, yes, I have done things that were wrong. And there have been times you did something you knew was wrong, but you went ahead and you did it anyway. You knew there might be consequences for it, but nonetheless, you did it. So if I ask you, have you done anything that was wrong? Yes. Did you know it was wrong? Yes. Did you anticipate that you would experience the consequences of your behavior? You would have to say again, yes. Sometimes you got away with it, didn't you? Sometimes you didn't get caught for doing something that was wrong. But sometimes you did get caught and you suffered the consequences with mom or dad or teacher or principal or whatever it was. I watched television for 15 minutes when I was a freshman at the Citadel. And it cost me 80 hours of my life walking back and forth across the quad every weekend for 10 weeks. I knew it was wrong to watch TV as a freshman, but March Madness is a, is a sin that beckons me each year. And I couldn't help myself. I went next door to a senior's room. He told me I could come. It would be okay. He even said, I have a refrigerator in there that's covered up and it has some chocolate milk in it. And I went into his room with a buddy of mine from Jacksonville, Florida, Mike Budd. I'm not going to protect the innocent today because Mike was not innocent. I've known two people from Jacksonville, Bob Winstead and Mike Budd, and they both have gotten me in trouble all the days of my life. We walked into that senior's room. We took the cardboard off that refrigerator. We poured ourselves a glass of chocolate milk, which we had not tasted in months and months and months. We turned that television on, which we had not seen one of those in months and months and months. And there it was, March Madness. And 15 minutes later, somebody had to have given us up because the academic officer of H Company walked in the room, said, what are you guys doing? Except he said it in a more colorful way than that. 80 tours, 80 hours to walk 
back and forth across the quadrangle on Fridays and Saturdays. I knew it was wrong. I knew there could be consequences. I didn't imagine 80 hours of consequences, but nonetheless, I knew there could be. But I knew that I could work it off too. But there's certain things in our lives that we can't work off. There's certain things in our lives that are impossible for us. And Jesus came to address the impossibilities of life. And that's what we remember this week. He came to address the impossible and the inevitable. Several years ago, I was drawn in by the title of the article, World Death Rate 100%. You know, and I wasn't thinking. I thought, oh my Lord, that sounds awful. So I started reading the article and and it revealed to me something I already knew. Everybody's going to die. Everybody who's come before us is going to die. And those of us who gather in here this day and feel good and are healthy and wonderful and wise, we're going to die. And everyone who comes after us is going to die. The world death rate is 100%. So Jesus came to address the impossible, which is sin, and the inevitable, which is death. It's no wonder that it got ugly as the week went by. But if this is true, if this is true, if He enables the impossible to become possible, if He eliminates the inevitability of something we all know that we are facing, it changes everything. And that's why we gather here 2,000 years later and sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. J. Barry Shepherd was a first... Presbyterian Church senior minister in New York City for quite some time. He traveled to Scotland and he tells the story of returning from Scotland and he had purchased a Celtic cross on the Isle of Iona. He decided he would carry it onto the plane. It was about two feet tall. He wrapped it carefully in paper and padding and he boarded the plane. They looked at him as if he had something that might be ominous. But when he told them it was a cross when they sent it through the machine and validated that. The security guards were no longer nervous because this was not a weapon of war. This was a weapon of redemption. He said they flew through the night. They landed in New York City. and He got off the plane and he went through customs. And they asked him what he was carrying and he said, a cross... And then he said, on the ticket at customs, a guy wrote this, item of a sentimental nature. If we're not careful, that's what the cross will become, an item of a sentimental nature. In Scotland, they had asked him, what do you have to declare? 
across. It's two feet high. And in New York, they ask him, what do you have to declare? And J. Barry Shepard says of that moment, it saddens me to think that I just told them the obvious. And I said to them, only a cross. Only a cross. An item of a sentimental nature. But there's not really anything sentimental about the cross. It stands at the very center of our worship. It stands at the very center of our faith, does it not? We understand the nature of this cross, that it defeated the impossible and it eliminated the inevitable. So why should we not rejoice and be glad? I was reading something this week that Leonard Sweet had written a number of years ago. He was writing about the season that we are in, which is the season of Lent. The season of Lent has become characterized by giving up something, has it not? And you may have practiced that during this period. Oftentimes, Sweet observed, we give up something that we consume, something that we eat usually. The most popular item to give up for Lent is chocolate. Some people go so far as to distinguish what kind of chocolate they will give up. I know people who give up milk chocolate, but they don't give up dark chocolate because dark chocolate supposedly has some positive medicinal properties. This is a season of giving up. But sweet rites, and this struck me, sacrifice is really not about giving up something. We tend to think it is. And so this season of sacrifice, we enter into the spirit of sacrifice by giving something up. We eliminate something that we enjoy so that we can sacrifice. But Sweet says the heart of the word sacrifice is not to give up. The heart of the word sacrifice is to make sacred. To make sacred. And that's what that cross does. It makes us sacred. Let me see if I can explain that. For years in this very place, parents have brought their babies to this altar. And the words have changed through the years, but in the old traditional liturgy of the church, for infant baptism, we said baptism is an outward and visible sign of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through which grace, through which grace we become partakers of His righteousness. We don't use those words anymore. But to partake of His righteousness is to say that by grace, His righteousness is imparted to us. It is given to us. We are made righteous in Him. His sacrifice makes us sacred. It delivers us from that which separates us from God. This cross is not something of a sentimental nature. It is so much more than that. And 2,000 years ago, a group of disciples turned the world upside down. 
imagine. Imagine that. There's so much more possibility in this sanctuary this morning than there was with those early disciples. I know we say, oh no, not really. Yes, yes, it really. Were they brilliant? No. By all accounts, they weren't incredibly smart. They were not brilliant. Were they powerful? No. They resided at the lower levels of the social strata. Were they just a bunch of confident people? No. And confidence matters. Self-confidence, we recognize the importance of that. I remember years ago reading an interview that Larry King had with Ty Cobb. Had to be a long time ago because Cobb died in 1961. And Larry King asked him in that interview, do you think you would bat 100? Do you think, I'm sorry, do you think you'd hit 300 if you played today? And Ty Cobb said, well, probably not. And King said, well, is it because of the night games? You know, so many more today than there used to be. Or is it because of the artificial turf that wears your body out? Or is it because of just all the travel that takes place now in baseball? Is that why you think even though you're a lifetime 367 hitter, you probably wouldn't hit 300 today? And he said, no, that has nothing to do with it. And Larry King said, well, what then? And he said, well, Larry, it's because I'm 70. I have a lot of confidence in what I'm able to do. I think I could hit 270 or 280 today at 70, but I probably wouldn't hit 367. That's confidence. And that's important, especially for a boy from Narrows, Georgia. I don't even know where that is. I thought he was from Royston. I'm assuming Narrows is very close to Royston. But there is no confidence. There is no confidence like Christ's confidence. They were not brilliant. They were not powerful. They weren't even confident. They just believed that somehow something had happened. Someone had come along and entered into their life experience and changed it. And he does the same thing every single day. So their confidence came in their confidence in Christ. Their confidence came in the power of faith and hope and love. These three. When you were a Young child in school, you learned addition and subtraction. And then if you're like me, you learn multiplication. Multiplication is an interesting possibility when you consider it at that age and that stage of your life. I received a card of the multiplication tables and we had to memorize it. And I remember it wasn't just 9 plus 9 equals 18. It was 9 times 9 equals 81. That seemed bigger. That seemed better. That seemed fuller. Think in your mind the highest number that you can begin to, to fathom. 
And you know on the left side of the equation, when you place that number there, and you put a times mark, and then you put a zero, that you're going to equal zero. No matter what you multiply times zero, it equals zero. And when we put life on the left side of that equation, and we multiply it by anything other than faith and hope and love, we come up with zero. That's just the way it is. That is the answer. But you see, they multiplied their lives. My life times faith and hope and love in Christ equals far more than I could ever dream or imagine. So these unpromising disciples, these common fishermen from Galilee, which was considered hillbilly country, they turned the world upside down. And somehow, somewhere, some way, throughout the 2,000 years the church has been in existence, we've begun to doubt that just a bit. And we don't know if we can move from this place this many more than the early church began with and really make a difference in that big, bad, troubled, overwhelming world. If it happened then, believe you me, it can happen again. Where do you stand today? Where are you in your relation to the one who came into the city to cries of Hosanna, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where is your place among his people? What is he calling you to do? What is the essence of your purpose today? Just today. Several years ago, I was watching a four-part, five-part, something-part series on George Washington. I enjoy those. And there's this scene when an emissary is sent to Washington from those who are you know, writing declarations of independence, those who were seeking to lead at that time. And he's asking Washington how things are going. He's wanting Washington to provide him an assessment and evaluation of what is going on. And this occurs at Valley Forge. We all know the story of Valley Forge. They're freezing to death. They're holes in their uniforms and they're running out of ammunition and they've got to make a move. Otherwise, the cause will be lost. And this man comes into the room with Washington and he says to Washington, you're a great man and you have done a magnificent job of leadership and on and on he goes. And you can tell that Washington is growing weary of all this praise and adoration. And he finally looks at the man and he asks him this one question. Where do you stand in relation to the cause 
that I represent. I don't want to know about how great I am. I want to know where you stand in this great and glorious cause that I, George Washington, represent. It's the question of Holy Week, is it not? Here at the beginning of the week, where do we stand in relation to this cause that he represents? Our answer to that question will make a huge difference, not only in your life, but in those who live around you and with you, those in this community and those in this church. Where do we stand in relation to this great, grand, glorious cause of Christ? I would encourage you this day to consider very carefully that question. And let us go forth and live this life that we are called to live. This compelling life that turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago. We know our cause. We know our cause. What we have to determine is our place in it. No better time than now. No better time than here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To listen to more sermons, read past devotions, or look up opportunities on how to connect, visit us at AthensFirstUMC.org. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following us on Instagram or Facebook at AthensFirstUMC.